they've never had a successful mRNA vaccine. They've never had any sort of successful vaccine for a coronavirus. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Dr. Tony Hinton, a consultant surgeon with over 30 years experience. Tony is part of the Health Advisory and Recovery Team, or HEART, a group of highly qualified UK doctors, scientists and other experts who share concerns about the handling of the pandemic. Who did they actually try it on? They just tried it on a relatively small number of fit, healthy adults. You couldn't take part if you are a child, although they then tried to inject them into children. You couldn't take part if you were pregnant. It'd never been tried, I think, on anybody above about 70. Elderly people were excluded. People with lots of serious medical conditions were excluded. And they then tried to give it to all those groups when it hadn't been tested on those groups. Here, you're injecting a known amount of the mRNA, but two people could make completely different amounts of spike protein from that. There's, there's no control over it. Yeah, so one person could make a very tiny amount, maybe not enough to get an immune reaction. Another person could make a huge, huge amount. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Dr Tony Hinton, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure, thank you very much for asking me. During the lockdowns you were a bit more outspoken than many health professionals. At what point did you start to feel that maybe things weren't right? Well, actually, it was very, very early on. Um, if you remember, the lockdown started on the 23rd of March, three years ago now, believe it or not. Who would have thought we would still be talking about this three years on? It's just yeah. astonishing. And by the second week in April, I was looking at the data showing that the number of deaths was start had peaked and was starting to fall. Now, if you work back... Those people must have, most of them then went to ITU first, they were in hospital first, they were ill for maybe a couple of weeks at home, and maybe a week after catching COVID before they got any symptoms. So the peak of the infections was probably four weeks before that, at least. So that was before the lockdown. Now, as people had already started changing their habits a little bit before lockdown, people were working a bit more from home and people were taking sensible, voluntary precautions. And so it was obvious at that point that the lockdown was not needed. So I didn't actually have any criticism of the original lockdown being instituted, although some of my colleagues do. But I thought that was just politicians panicking. And, you know, if politicians panic and they overdo things and they're too cautious, well, they're not going to get the blame for that. If they don't do enough and it's a disaster, they'll absolutely get the blame. So they'll never take that risk. But it was obvious from that point that from then on, no further lockdown was necessary and no further repeated lockdowns were necessary because the cases just come down by themselves. And, that, and that's usually what happens with the virus because... It spreads and it affects lots of people initially because not many people have had it or no one had had that one. And then it reaches a peak because lots, lots of people get infected. Mm -hmm. But then as in people join up with people that have already been infected, they can't pass it on to them. So the figures start to drop and it drops naturally. And then maybe with another variant, a few months later, you might get a little bit more, but usually a smaller peak and a smaller peak 
until eventually it becomes like a cold, which is basically what we have now. Um, and certainly you could see what harms the lockdowns were going to do. Um, I was tweeting about, you know, kids' education. Um, 100,000 children never went back to school. No one knows what happened to them. And it seems no one cares in government what happens to them. Um, all the cancer backlog. I mean, that's just astonishing. A lot. Of my, I don't see cancer patients my, in my own specialty, but I speak to lots of the doctors that do. And they all tell me they've just seen an explosion of late stage cancer presentations um, a lot of those would be people that should have been diagnosed during those lockdown times and they just couldn't get that health care I mean that the the National Health Service became like a national COVID service and it was very very few times when any hospital was uh, as they called it overwhelmed um, a lot of the time they were just empty and there was nothing going on um, my own son was, uh, for the first year, looking after COVID patients. Um, he did catch COVID very early on. He wasn't particularly ill with it. Um, we were mixing with him all the time. I, I had no fear about catching COVID for myself. Um, we just sort of tried to carry on as normal as possible, really. Mm -hmm. But you could see that the lockdowns were just going to be uh, an appalling and ongoing disaster, which... I think is pretty much accepted now. There are a few people that still say it saved lots of lives. But if you look at the data from around the world, the countries that locked down the longest and hardest have some of the worst records on COVID. Um, there's no positive correlation between harder, longer lockdowns and less COVID. Um, you look at places even like Australia, where they, or sort of, Western Australia, where they locked down their own border with the rest of Australia even for like two years mm. um, until everyone was vaccinated, like 90 odd percent vaccinated. And then when they started to get some COVID cases as they opened up, their death rate was just the same as anyone else. It, it, it made no difference that they were all vaccinated. Mm. Um, so the lockdowns at best will put off what's going to happen but they have loads of negative consequences. should never be done again. And, of course, if you go back to our original proper pandemic plan, one of the things in that that you never did was lockdowns. Right. You tried to keep the economy going. You tried to keep schools open. Um, and I guess the country in Europe that sort of did that was Sweden, really. And, and we look at the difference now between Sweden with their economy... Um, the way their children were kept at school. Um, I used to t tweet about Sweden and I used to, uh, you know, um, going against the lockdowns and say, look, you know, we should be more like Sweden. They've, they've got just as good results as we've got with no lockdowns at all. And people say, no, no, it's no they are locking down in Sweden. So I went for two weekends to Sweden on two visits and it was basically normal. We got to the hotel and the reception staff in the hotel were wearing masks that's the only people we saw wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And that's just because it was a big international hotel chain. And I guess they probably just had worldwide rules and their staff wore masks, that was it. But out in the shops, now everything normal. The restaurants, um, you had to be served sitting at the table. Um, but that was it. I mean, otherwise, and I, I think they banned um, groups of things going on more than 500 people. Right. That's all they did. 
otherwise it, it was like it was I, I would have just stayed there it was fantastic but I had to come back to work did you talk to other healthcare professionals about your concerns yeah I've, I've had lots of discussions with other doctors and nurses and in fact the group that it's hardest to engage with is other doctors I remember a conversation with um, a very good friend actually and um, we were talking about when they started to vaccinate children. That's one of the other big things that I came out absolutely against because that was just totally unnecessary and dangerous in my view. And um, I was saying, oh, they're gonna get these vaccines for kids then. And I knew she'd got three kids. And um, I said, are you gonna let your kids get vaccinated? Oh, she said, why not? I said, well, they've had COVID, haven't they? You told me months ago that you'd all had COVID. I said, so you've had COVID, you're all immune. Why would you take the vaccines? Oh, we need them for going on holiday, she said. Mm. So to my mind, that, that isn't freely given informed consent. It's uh, coercion that, you know, you can't do this, that and the other unless you have this vaccine. We've never said that about any other vaccine. Totally nuts. And then actually a, another good friend who I speak to a lot um, was in clinic the other day. And he was coughing and spluttering. I said, oh, you don't seem very well. Oh, he said, I've had COVID again. So this is like the third time. And I said, so, I said, how, how many vaccine doses have you had now then? Oh, he said, four. I said, well, they're just rubbish then, aren't they? Or words to that effect. And he looked at me puzzled and he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, they don't work, do they? I said, I said what other vaccine have you ever had? four times and then you've caught the disease i said any other disease you'd say that vaccine doesn't work i said you don't have to be a doctor to work that out and he sort of just laughed but <laughs> but you could see he was starting to think i yeah. mean i mean surely you've got to I, I, I don't see how people can't accept that it, it's it just to me seems so obvious you know I mean, ask anyone at the bus stop. You say, right, we're going to give this vaccine for this thing. We're going to give you four doses and then you catch it. Do you think that's any good or not? They'd all say no, surely. But very few of us are willing to speak out because particularly if you have an NHS job, um, basically your job's on the line if you speak out um, and you'll get called in to speak to the medical director and told you've got to stop and uh, maybe suspended or um which isn't good really i mean i mean somebody said to me the other day they said oh i was against the international consensus on science i said no no i'm not i said because you only hear one side of the story i said the people who are of the other opinion have been shut down almost completely until very very recently um and actually now there is more and more sort of data coming out. There was some stuff from Australia the other day um, that was gained through a couple of freedom of information requests. Um, and this was information that the regulators had before the vaccines were approved. And there was two particular things in it. One was that um, they'd infected a whole load of monkeys and half of them had been given the vaccine half of them not the vaccine and when they looked at their lungs 
they've both got a bit of inflammation in the lungs from giving, giving them COVID. Um, but it was about the same in both groups. There was no big difference. There was no big reduction in the ones that had had the vaccine. And yet they said, oh, well, that shows it's working. Let's try it then in humans. This was before it even began to humans. And then the other thing is they'd done some research on mice looking at um, implantation of basically trying to get the mice pregnant and seeing how many embryos were successfully implanted in these mice. And so they're basically looking at miscarriage rates. So again, half the mice were vaccinated, half the mice just had a placebo. And in the vaccinated mice, the miscarriage rate was double the ones that hadn't had a vaccine. Um, now really with that data available, I'm just astonished that those vaccines ever went into a human trial. It's just amazing. Um, so when you see the data that was available to some people, but wasn't in the public domain, and in fact in Australia it took two freedom of information requests to get that material, it's still partially redacted, but the first version that came out was like about 50% just black bars everywhere mm. with everything redacted. And then it was actually a lay person that kept pushing for this. He wasn't a doctor. Again, probably because any doctor pushing for that in Australia would have been struck off. It was a lay person kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually it went to some information commissioner and they said, no, no, you've got to, you've got to remove some of those redactions. So they put it out again. And of course, these things that are particularly disturbing were the things that were redacted the first time. Right. And now you can see, of course, people look straight to what was redacted and wasn't because those were the worst bits. But of course, they're probably not the worst bits because there are still some bits that are redacted. So goodness knows what's in those. Um, I mean, eventually this will all come out. Mm. I mean, we, we wouldn't have been doing an interview like this a year ago, probably. No. Things are definitely moving. And when you look at the political discussions that are going, because I, I think this will be sorted out. It's politics that will sort this out because it's actually not to do with medicine. It's all politics. And when you look at all the questions being asked um, in Australia, in their parliament, when you look at all the questions being asked in the American Senate, there's a lot of open discussion about this now and people being pulled up and questioned the House of Commons, disgracefully, as soon as an MP gets up to talk about any of this, the rest of the House of Commons disappears and empties. Um, there's no open discussion. They're just burying their heads still. But, I mean, they'll have to discuss it at some point. They, they won't be able to continue like that as it comes out everywhere. It only has to come out in one country and it's out everywhere. With regards to the vaccines, um, at the start, it, it seemed really impressive how quickly they were made, how quickly they were distributed. But now we've got these piles of vaccines that no one wants. Do you think there was a particular turning point where people kind of changed their minds? I mean, I, I would change the word impressive to concerning. <laughs> we've never had a vaccine that has been developed that fast. It normally takes maybe 10 years to develop a vaccine. And we kept, I took two doses of the Pfizer, but I'll talk about that in a minute. But there's never been a vaccine developed that quickly. And people say, oh no, but that sort of technology has been going for like 20, 30 years. Well, yeah, all those mRNA sort of experiments have. 
but they've never had a successful mRNA vaccine. They've never had any sort of successful vaccine for a coronavirus. It's like the common cold, and it changes to... I mean, in Wales, they had this common cold unit that went on for, like, 30, 40 years. And they used to get a whole load of volunteers each autumn, uh, students usually that wanted some earn some cash, and they'd lock them away for two weeks at a time, and they'd infect them, and they'd try all various things, and none of it ever worked. And in the end, they closed the common cold unit because they came to the conclusion that you can't make a vaccine to coronavirus. No, no, nobody ever has. And, I mean... Still nobody has, <laughs> if you look at how these ones work or don't work. Um, so there were the, and, and then we kept being told no steps were missed out. But of course they were. Let, let's just go back to the Pfizer trial. Who did they actually try it on? They just tried it on a relatively small number of fit, healthy adults. You couldn't take part if you're a child, although they then tried to inject them into children. So they'd never been trialled in children. You couldn't take part if you were pregnant. And in fact, there were stringent measures given to people to make sure they didn't get pregnant, like double forms of contraception and things. So it would never been tried on pregnant women. It would never been tried, I think, on anybody above about 70. Elderly people were excluded. People with lots of serious medical conditions were excluded. And... They then tried to give it to all those groups when it hadn't been tested on those groups. And in fact, you know, the fit, healthy adults, there was never that much evidence that they ever needed a vaccine anyway. When you look at sort of, you know, death rates, they're hugely skewed towards the very elderly and the very ill. And in fact, it, if there's one figure you need to remember if you're ever discussing this with anybody, it's just that the average age of death in the UK from or with COVID was 82. And the average age of death from anything was 81. So it's almost as if you catch COVID and you live an extra year. I mean, it's not quite that. But it, it, it just shows it cannot be that bad a disease. The fact that people dying of it die at an older age than the general population are dying. You know, it's, it's people that are very elderly and very ill from other things that probably the next flu, cold or nasty illness they got would be what carried them away. And some of these cases happened to be COVID. But the other thing about it is that, you know, I don't know how many people still believe that influenza sort of took a holiday and disappeared for two years. I don't believe that. Um, a lot of those cases that were put down as COVID will have been influenza. Um, the original PCR machine couldn't tell the difference between the two. There's now a new PCR machine that can distinguish between influenza right. and COVID. So the original ones never did. Um, so there'll been a lot of sort of misdiagnosis. And a lot of people will have died early on, not only because they caught COVID, but because they weren't treated. So the people in the care homes, um, you know, if someone now in a care home got a nasty case of flu and was struggling with their breathing, they'd be sent into hospital for a week. A lot of them would have some antibiotics, perhaps a drip to rehydrate them a bit, um, look at all their various medications and perhaps alter those a little bit, and within a week they'd be back to the care home. Better. But what happened? No, they were just told you've got to stay there. 
No doctors went in to see them. Mm -hmm. They got no medical treatment. They were just locked away in their room and they were basically left to die um, because they were trying to keep the hospitals empty for all these young people that were going to turn up and were more worthy of being saved as they saw it. But of course, loads of young people didn't turn up with it. Um, the, the ones that did had either got very severe illness of some other description or sometimes they were perhaps very overweight. That was the other thing that caused problems. Mm -hmm. um, but for general fit, healthy people, COVID was never much more than a nasty flu. You mentioned about taking the vaccine yourself. Yes, so I had my son's also a doctor. Um, he's an orthopaedic surgeon. And when this vaccine was started to be mentioned, and, and, and we, look, we looked at the sort of mRNA ones and we looked at the um, AstraZeneca ones, which is a slightly different thing, sort of delivered by a, a sort of a, um, a viral sort of route. And we had long, long discussions about it as to whether to take it or not. And we said, you know, this is, this is we both agreed it's like really weird stuff. It's never been done before. There's never been anything like it injected to people before. And the one thing we couldn't see, we could see how it also was supposed to work. But the one thing we couldn't see, and I still can't understand, is how does it switch off? So the theory was that you have this mRNA injection. That was just supposed to stay in your muscle. We know now that's not true. It goes everywhere. And in fact... Again, what that Australian data shows, they knew it went everywhere, even though they were telling us it stayed in your biceps muscle. Right. And then what was supposed to happen is that bit of mRNA was supposed to get into some of the muscle cells in your biceps muscle. It was supposed to get into something called the ribosomes, which are like little factories inside your cells that produce this spike protein. And the spike protein then was supposed to sit on the outside of the membrane of your muscle cells and your immune system then recognises that, makes the antibodies and you're immune. But there's lots of issues about that really. First of all, you're, you're not injecting, you know, a, a normal vaccine, you're injecting a known amount of some dead virus or something and you know what the reaction to that will be. Here, you're injecting a known amount of the mRNA but two people could make completely different amounts of spike protein from that. There's, there's no control over it. Yeah, so one person could make a very tiny amount, maybe not enough to get an immune reaction. Another person could make a huge, huge amount. And, and that was never looked into, how different people might make different amounts of spike protein. Mm. I mean, the, the more you think about this technology, the more you just think, it's just totally nuts. It, it'd be like giving people... Um, I'd say it'd be like going to get paracetamol tablets for a headache. Now, paracetamol, if you take too much paracetamol, it'll really damage your liver and you can die from it. That's why you know you get little packs of a certain amount. Mm. But it'd be as if they were giving out packs of paracetamol, uh, some of them like the normal dose, and some of them a dose 100 times larger than it ought to be. And all those patients that took that for a headache would die. I mean, we don't do that with any other drug. We give an absolute measured amount that we know is not toxic and will sort of do the job. So what we couldn't see, myself and my son, is, is how it would switch off. And interestingly, on the CDC, the American 
uh, health regulator website, they had um, statements that said the mRNA only lasts in your body for, I think it said, two weeks, and the spike protein, which the mRNA produces, mm -hmm. only lasts for um, a matter of a month. Both those statements were removed about six months ago because they don't know. Nobody knows. And interestingly, I keep having blood tests done to monitor my spike protein antibodies. Now, spike protein antibodies you can get from infection or from the vaccine. And my last vaccination was March, um, get the times there, 2021, so ages ago. And I'm still making huge amounts of spike protein antibodies. And what concerns me about that is, is that because I'm still making large amounts of spike protein, which is like, really, and, and will I forever? And will that cause a problem? I don't know. So the reason me and my son eventually did decide to go ahead with this vaccine is, is for two reasons. First of all, as doctors, we were being told it was our duty to take the vaccine because it was going to protect our vulnerable patients from catching COVID from us. Because if we took the vaccine, we couldn't catch it, we couldn't pass it on. We now know both those things are untrue. And in fact, so our doses were both January and March 21. By May 21, I was hearing of people that had, had the vaccine and still caught COVID. So I just knew it wasn't true. And I thought, <laughs> I've been sold a pop. And then the second reason was, do you remember Matt Hancock's, was he, his 15 million jabs to freedom? So that was 7 million people having two jabs each. That's all, it was, that's all that was going to get it originally when they first announced it. It, was, it, there was, it wasn't said to be given to everybody. Right. And so that was medical staff, people over 70, people in care homes, and people with other particular illnesses that supposedly made them more vulnerable, 7 million people. So we both discussed it and we said, well, you know, take one for the team, as it were. And then it's all over for everybody. No more lockdowns, everything back to normal. It's all finished and we take the risk. So that's why we took the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, you know, knowing what I know now, um, was it a mistake? Absolutely, it was a mistake. But with the information I had at the time, um, I sort of felt I've got no choice, really. Mm. Yeah. The vaccine damage payment scheme uh, has increased its staff 20-fold to deal with the claims that are coming in from people who say they suffered injury as, as yes. a result of the vaccines. Yeah. You personally know someone who experienced that. Well, uh, yes. Well, actually, the, my, my first vaccination was on the uh, 10th of January, 21. And... Because we were all, it was organised by the hospital, one of the hospitals I work at, and it was organised at a large teaching hospital in London, and it was the Pfizer vaccine, and initially those were all done in sort of hospital situations, because the Pfizer vaccine had to be kept at a very low temperature, like minus 80 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you can't put it in your normal freezer. It has to be a very specific sort of freezer that's only available in those big sort of uh, hospitals. And so we all went off there. I think it was on a Sunday morning. And I wasn't there at the same time 
as this other person, but I was I was talking to them later on because I had to try and help her out to get a vaccine exemption. And she she recounted to me she she had her injection. Um, I would say there was no there was no consent process. I mean, basically, you got there, and they took your details of who you were and stuff, and you were asked, did you have any allergies to anything, and which arm you wanted it in. That was it. There was no other discussion about possible risks, the fact it was done, there was nothing. I mean, I don't blame those staff. They were just doing what they'd been told by their, the higher-ups. Um, but she said, yeah, she had a vaccine, she waited around for about 10 minutes or so and it was on the fifth floor and she went down the lift and by the time she got to the ground floor she could feel her hands start to tingle her lips starting to tingle and the chest was starting to get tight to breathe and she knew what was happening she was having what's called an anaphylactic reaction which is just like a really really severe allergic reaction to something in that injection so she pressed the button for the fifth floor and just went straight back up and she had to be admitted to the hospital she had to have adrenaline steroids a drip um, she didn't have to be intubated for a breathing or anything luckily um, but she was in hospital for 48 hours before she could go home she said she was extremely lucky she said 10 minutes later she would have been in her car on her own driving back home right. and she probably would have collapsed at the wheel had a crash and before she was found she a breathing would have stretched she would have been dead so she was so lucky mm. now obviously after that she did not want to have her second dose of Pfizer and yet she was repeatedly told by different doctors no no she should have it and they would arrange it to be done at a special hospital inpatient unit where they had all the facilities available to resuscitate her if the same thing happened. I just thought, this is crazy. Have you ever heard of that for any other vaccination? You know, if someone has a reaction to the flu vaccine, you say, don't take that again. If someone has a reaction to penicillin, you say, yeah, don't take that again. You don't say, oh, no, the next time you do it, we'll have all the resuscitation equipment for her. That just struck me as totally weird. You just think, why are they insisting that this person has to get two vaccinations? Um, and, of course, after each of these vaccinations, there was no measurement made of um, antibodies and stuff to see, you know, it could be that she got hugely elevated antibodies and never needed another one anyway, yeah? A lot of medical staff have vaccinations for hepatitis B because it's something we can catch from a patient and pass on to a patient particularly if you're a surgeon and you're cutting on this blood about and stuff like that but in that situation you might have the vaccine but then you'll have an antibody test a few months later and if the antibody test is high enough you never have that vaccine again right. you check that it's actually worked and it's given you immunity none of that was done with these at all and, of course, the other thing that was totally ignored was like the fact you could get natural immunity from having previously caught COVID uh, was also 
totally ignored. I mean, for ages, it, 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 it wasn't even entertained that that was possible. You could only get immune from having the vaccine. I mean, that's not like any other disease I've ever heard of. Um, and interestingly, this nurse had had bad COVID months before. So it could be that she'd had bad COVID, she'd had lots and lots of antibodies made, and then she had the injection, and then she had this massive reaction to it, a bit like the second time someone takes penicillin. You don't have a bad reaction the first time you take penicillin. It's the second time. Right. because you've made all these antibodies to it. So anyway, so then I did a lot of work with her trying to help her to get, you could get a thing called a medical exemption to the second dose of the vaccine. And um, I had to write lots of letters backwards and forwards to her GP. And ev eventually her GP agreed to put it on their system to get this vaccine exemption if I wrote to them and instructed them to do it I just thought that's really you know you, th this person was so worried not having somebody to point to him and say he told me to do it mm -hmm. um I thought that was weird but yeah it was it, I mean and we don't we don't do that with anything else it's it's very strange that it was pushed to that extent and of course now it's sort of quietly being dropped um you know from uh I think from from middle of February you couldn't get a dose if you were below 50. Um, these boosters coming out in the spring, you can't get that if you're below 75. Um, so they, they're gradually... The World Health Organization, just in the last few days, has said now, um, no reason to be giving these vaccines to children and young people. They don't need it. Well, I mean, tell me something we didn't know. I mean, we, we were saying that before they were ever injecting into young people. Um, the states in Canada, they're still injecting these into six-month-old babies. I mean, that, I mean, no one has any idea what that will do to these children later on. N no idea at all, because none of the tests were ever done. Um, there were no tests ever done for, does it cause cancer eventually? Um, what sort of toxicity it's got? None of it was done. You know, all that is normally done in sort of vaccine production. But all those steps were just skipped over. Um, because they saw it as this sort of emergency. I'm thinking a bit more about the, the children um, that were affected by it. Their schools were closed, they couldn't get their education, they couldn't see their friends. Yep. Also their speech and language development because people were wearing the masks all the time. Yep. But it seems they were the least at risk. Absolutely. Can you talk a bit more about the effect of I mean, I mean, ch children from COVID, almost zero risk. I think under under 18 in the UK, I think there were about 20 deaths from or with COVID. Um, the vast majority of those were children with very severe illnesses, like leukaemia, for instance, that would affect their um, immunity. Um, they weren't fit, healthy kids. Yeah, uh, I mean, fit, healthy kids are just not at risk. Conversely, flu, for instance, flu affects children um, almost as badly as it affects 70-year-olds. Right. Um, COVID is very, very different. I mean, the, 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 the chance of dying if you're 80 compared if you're 8 is about 10,000-fold difference. I mean, massive difference, yeah? And all this stuff we were told, oh, it affects everybody equally, everybody's at risk... It, it, it was always, and you could see it was nonsense. It was always nonsense. Um, yeah, so so children never needed that vaccine. 
some of the people I see in my clinic are small children that have got hearing or speech problems because sometimes a speech problem because I'm an ear, nose and throat surgeon and sometimes speech problems can be because the child's got a hearing problem and actually it's the hearing needs sorted out and then the speech is correct but there's been a lot of delay in you know, speech to speech therapists a lot of delay in children's development and stuff because with the masks you know but you know with the parents wearing a mask and not being able to see the parents face that has a big effect and I heard of it, it, it was it was a really sort of disturbing thing really a mother told me um, all these various mother and toddler groups you know organized by the hospitals and stuff had, had all stopped yeah so I think it was about 10 mothers uh, had all got together and decided to start off their own um, underground sort of <laughs> meeting and the first one they had um, 10 mothers 10 kiddies at somebody's house and they had a big round carpet on the floor and they sat all these toddlers round on the outside of the carpet and they put some toys in the middle and she said do you know she said the kid that these these were all um single children you know uh, one child families mm. and she said the kids all just sat looking at the other kids for like about 10 minutes just thinking what's that then they'd not they'd not seen it that they, they were like two years old that that they, they'd not seen another kid wow. before um and said it took ages for one of them to go forward and take a toy i mean who knows what ongoing i mean those early years are like really important and you know again come back to sweden sweden kept all children up to age 16 in school the whole way through they did no testing of children at all all they did is if a child had any symptoms they sent them home for a few days until their symptoms had gone and then they got them back into class they had no big issues with that it all worked perfectly well and and that chap you know that Anders Tegnell was pilloried by people from other countries got a lot of criticism I think from politicians in his own country but luckily they'd got a system whereby legally um, it was their public health doctors that were in charge of the response uh, and they kept the politicians informed mm. but the politicians didn't have the veto over what the public health people were suggesting they did and they basically stuck to what was the UK's pandemic plan we threw ours out the window and just copied sort of Italy after Italy copied China. It was The whole thing was nuts. I mean, that they, they had a pandemic plan they'd worked on for 20-odd years and they basically did all the opposite things. Um, so quite what the point in spending all that time and money on working out a pandemic plan was, I don't know. In January, uh, there was an article in The Guardian um, entitled... Britain's excess death rate as a, as, a, as a disastrous high. And it talked about um, a humanitarian crisis of bodies piling up in Britain's mortuaries. And do you agree with that view? Well, there's, there's certainly been a higher level of, um, I don't want to call it unexplained or ignored excess deaths for a long time, really starting from the middle of last year. Um, more than we had before the vaccines came out. Um, 
and we need to have an explanation of that. And I think there are three probable causes. It's quite difficult to know how much each thing contributes. Um, so some of it will be sort of lack of availability of medical care when the hospitals were basically a COVID-only service. So people that would have had their blood pressure tended to, um, their diabetes tended to, have maybe deteriorated and are in a worse condition and are then more likely to die sooner of the consequences of those sorts of diseases. So some of it is probably lack of availability of medical care previously. Some of it, I think, is ongoing lack of medical care because such huge um, waiting times have been built up for the NHS. And then also, you know, we, we hear of people that have had strokes or heart attacks waiting hours for an ambulance. Well, particularly things like strokes and heart attacks, how soon you get to hospital and get treated is absolutely critical as to A, whether you survive or not, and B, whether you survive without any ongoing disability. So some of the excess deaths will be that, people not able to get to hospital fast enough. But then the thing that just keeps being ignored and not mentioned, because there are lots of stories now in the papers, like that one in The Guardian, about excess deaths, what's causing these excess deaths. But the one thing that is obviously not allowed to be discussed is that some of these will be post vaccination i'm afraid and you can look at that that there's a there's a, a government website called it's called the, the yellow card website mm -hmm. and a yellow card i've done a lot of yellow cards so when i see a patient for instance i, I see a certain number of patients that come along because they've got um noise in their ear something called tinnitus yeah and i've seen a lot of patients that have had that within some hours of vaccination some within days of vaccination too much of a coincidence not for one to have caused the other mm. and so with those patients i've done what's called a yellow card which is you report that um, you can't know in an individual case if that was the cause but what should happen is if lots of yellow cards go in to the system and it's patients that have had tinnitus and a few days before had the vaccine then the people at the other end where it's reported to should be able to see that pattern building up and put two and two together and say, yeah, we don't normally see this um, with with other things. You know, these reports are vastly more than normal. It, there must be a risk that one is causing the other. And they'll put that down as a, as a possible side effect. And I think it's pretty much accepted now that one of the side effects that I see in my particular specialty, this tinnitus noise in the ear can be caused after vaccination. But if you look at the government's yellow card website, at the moment, they've got about two and a half thousand deaths that have been reported after COVID vaccines. Um, they term it as uh, soon after vaccination, but they don't define what the soon is, but they say soon after vaccination. Um, now, the other thing about the yellow card database is it's very, very underreported. So um, at a minimum, you have to assume, and this is from the yellow card database's own figures, 
they reckon that there's at least 10 times as many reactions and deaths as are reported. So if they're saying they've got 2,500 deaths after vaccination that are soon after vaccination, this is COVID vaccination, obviously, um, that's more like 25,000. So that's about a third of the excess deaths. So perhaps a ballpark figure would be if we say, you know, a third of those excess deaths are vaccination related, which is massive. We've done it for that with any of the vaccination. Um, about a third are medical problems that built up because people couldn't be seen. And about a third are people not getting to hospital quickly enough when they've got something like a stroke or a heart attack. Mm -hmm. I, I think that would be reasonable, probably ballpark figures to start looking at. In order for science to work, it needs to be open to challenge, operate in a, a free environment. But during these lockdown times, people that didn't agree with the government science were mocked, silenced. I mean, you were booted off Twitter, weren't you? I was. Well, actually, do you know, I've had lots of discussions with colleagues about what is the worst aspect of this last three years. You know, and some people say, yeah, it's kids' vaccinations, it's what happened in the care homes... Um, it's you know uh, it, it's it's the the ongoing vaccine damage that we start to see now. It's the damage to the NHS. But actually, I would say the one thing that caused all of that was the censorship that happened from the beginning. Because if it wasn't for the censorship that happened from the beginning, none of the other things would have ever happened. Because people would have seen that it was ridiculous. That there should have been a proper open debate. And, you know, one side was just completely shut down. I mean, I was having a discussion with someone on Twitter the other day and they said, um, I wasn't following, what did they say? The international scientific consensus. I said, well, no, I'm not. I said, but the only reason you know that is that all people have been able to see until very recently is this so-called international scientific consensus. They've not been able to see all the people on the other side, some of them professors at Harvard and Stanford and stuff, that would, you know, the people that did the Great Barrington Declaration, that all just completely shut down. So if there had been no censorship, we would have almost certainly had early treatment. Uh, the early treatment would have saved lots of lives. We wouldn't have locked people all away in care homes with no doctors visiting, no relatives visiting. Um, we wouldn't have had the vaccines because you could only have the vaccines because there was supposedly no other treatment. So the vaccines had to have emergency use authorisation and you can only get emergency use authorisation if there are no other alternatives already available. Right. It would have had to go through the normal... That you could have still had a vaccine, but it would have been on that 10-year development programme. And by then, of course, it would all have been over. Um, so, yeah, so I, I, I started talking on Twitter about lockdowns, and then I talked more about um, kids' vaccinations, which I was very, very against. Um, because it never been tested on children, for one thing. And then I was actually on holiday. Um, it must have been, I mean, almost a year ago probably now. And, in fact, I was just about to go into a sauna. And there was a sign outside the sauna, and it said, 
please do not use the sauna if you have a weak heart or if you're pregnant. And I thought, God, all the things we tell pregnant women not to do. Not eat soft cheese, not have a glass of wine, not take any unnecessary medication. And yet at that point then, loads of people were pushing for pregnant women to have this vaccine and mm. saying, oh, it was all safe. And if I, but if I, better than safe, it was dangerous if they didn't take it. I just thought, this is mad. There were no pregnant women ever in the trial. Women in the trial were told specifically they must not get pregnant. Um, and if they did, they were, they were totally withdrawn from the trial. They didn't get any other doses. Um, I thought, this is just crazy. So I just took a picture of that and I put it on Twitter and I said, you know, all the things we tell pregnant women not to do, and yet they're told to take this new genetic injection. And in fact, somebody said to me, well, the reason I was thrown off is that I said genetic injection. But in fact, a lot of us swapped to those sorts of terms because if you put COVID vaccine, whatever these algorithms are they have would automatically sort of take that down right. and nobody would see it. So, and I didn't say it was a good thing for pregnant women to have it. I didn't say it was a bad thing. I was just drawing the difference between, look at all these things actually we say they shouldn't do, and yet, no, we say they should do this. And I was leaving it for people to comment if they thought, yeah, it was right or wrong, whatever. And within hours, I was off. That was it. And um, I, I, I didn't bother to um, appeal at that point. I thought it was no point because I didn't, I didn't see anything wrong in that tweet. So I thought, well, obviously, I was on some sort of list that they wanted to get me off anyway. And around that time, there were lots of other doctors um, being taken down from Twitter, um, some with a lot more reach than I had, um, people like Peter McCullough, Robert Malone, um, uh, you know, people with like 500,000 followers and stuff taken down. So um, I, did, I didn't do anything else about it. And actually, it's, it's quite nice to have a rest on Twitter because it could be quite a vicious sort of place. Um, a few months before that, in fact, um, there were a whole load of people sort of started to have a go at me on Twitter. Again, it was a bit, it was something very, very innocuous. And then the next thing I knew, I had phone calls from two of the hospitals that I work at um, to call me in to discuss my social media. Well, the only social media I'm on is Twitter. So anyway, so I went in for these meetings and they said, um, so it was a meeting with the chief executive and the medical director at both places. And they said they'd had lots of complaints about uh, my Twitter feed. And I said, oh, I said, are these, are these complaints from uh, patients? No, not from patients. Um, I said, so who are they from? Oh, they're mainly anonymous. I said, okay. So I said, well, what exactly are they saying that I've said is incorrect? I said, because everything I post, um, I can either produce like a paper that shows that point. Quite often I can produce government data from the ONS or the yellow card recording system or something to support what I've said. Um, no, no, they're not complaining about anything particularly you've said. Um, they just don't want you saying anything. I said, oh, okay. And I said, well, I've got a right to free speech, haven't I? And they said, yes. And I said, well, what are your concerns? Oh, they said, well, our concerns as, as, a, 
as a hospital, um, we have to be seen to support the government line, whether we agree with it or not. And actually, that was a strange thing to say that they, I've, I've only just thought that, that they said that they had to support the government line. And I thought no more about it. And we just agreed that I would put something on my Twitter profile that just said, these are my own views and uh, retweets uh, are not necessarily endorsements. And we left it at that and I had no further issues. Um, and then quite recently, there was a report came out from somebody called the Big Brother Watch group. And they'd done freedom of information requests looking at what the government had been doing with social media and what influence the government had had on censoring people on Twitter and Facebook and things. And there was a 100-page hundred-page report. And I had a call from a colleague who said, um, oh, have you, have you read that report? And I said, no, I said, I haven't. I said, partly, I said, because if I'm not mentioned in it, I'll be very embarrassed. Anyway, within half an hour, I'd had a phone call from another colleague to say, oh, yes, you're on page 46. <laughs> so I looked at page 46, and there I was being discussed in this government um, misinformation committee or whatever. And the date of that was just a couple of weeks before I got called into these two hospitals. So I just thought, that's too much of a coincidence. I'm sure they were rung up by some government person and told to get me in and give me a talking to. And in fact, now, having thought about it, the fact they said they had to be seen to agree the government line, that very much fits it. Because I'm not sure, I don't know why they would have used that term. Um, but that actually fits. I'm sure that's what happened. But anyway, um, finally, I, I got back on Twitter um, just this January. So I, I was off it for six months, which is quite nice in a way. Dr Tony Anton, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.